Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. The Branch Davidians, The Anthill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of gender dysphoria, suicidal thoughts, and warfare. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Traitor, truth-teller, hero, villain. How you think of Chelsea Manning depends entirely on your perspective. Her crimes aren't in question. By her own admission, she disclosed more than 700,000 classified documents to WikiLeaks in the biggest security leak in American history. But to this day, why she did it is still debated. Was she a principled whistleblower who knew exactly what she was doing? Or was she a young soldier who cracked under pressure and exposed state secrets in retaliation? The thing is, you could make the argument that both of those ideas are true, simultaneously, because the world isn't black and white, and nobody's just one thing. And to really understand Chelsea's motivations, you need to go beyond the attention-grabbing headlines. To understand her crimes, you have to understand her life. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, we'll meet Chelsea Manning as she struggles with her gender and identity, then follow her as she joins the army in search of answers. From there, she became so disillusioned that she decided to leak classified documents. Next week, we'll explore how Chelsea's actions escalated into the biggest intelligence security scandal the world had ever seen. Then we'll dive into her arrest, imprisonment, and eventually her controversial release. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? 
Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. In the 1980s, the suburbs of Oklahoma City were quintessential Americana, Kids biked through the neighborhood and swam in backyard pools. Nothing bad ever happened there. Not yet, anyway. The Oklahoma City bombing was still years away, and the era of milk carton kids was only just taking off. In other words, it was the perfect place for a young family to settle down. So when 27-year-old Brian Manning got a job in Oklahoma City as a computer systems manager, it signaled the start of a tidy new beginning. Four years later, in 1987, he and his wife, Susan, welcomed their second child, Chelsea. Now, here's a moment when context is important to understanding, because Chelsea was designated male at birth and presented that way growing up. But even as a young kid, she knew that wasn't her true identity. According to Matthew Scherer's New York Times profile, The Long, Lonely Road of Chelsea Manning, one day in 1993, five-year-old Chelsea found her father and told him that she wanted to do girl things. It wasn't precise language, but hey, she was five. All she knew was that on the inside, she felt like she was a girl and she wanted to express that. Her father, however, didn't see it that way. Brian was a stern Navy veteran who wanted his kid to follow in his footsteps. He told Chelsea in no uncertain terms that boys and girls were fundamentally different, right down to their, as he said, plumbing. Little Chelsea listened, but she didn't really understand. What her dad was saying didn't line up with how she felt. There was this constant nagging in the back of her mind that she was meant to be someone else. But feeling like she couldn't express that to the outside world, Chelsea had no choice but to experiment in the relative safety of her home. She'd sneak into her older sister's room and try on her clothes. Then she'd take her makeup bag and apply lipstick, admiring herself in the mirror. Those were some of the rare instances where Chelsea truly felt like herself. But as soon as she heard even the faintest noise downstairs, she'd wipe it all off and run back into her own room. God forbid her dad caught her. According to Chelsea, Brian wasn't above physical punishment, and she didn't want to get a beating. Before we continue with Chelsea's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we've done a lot of research for the show. Later in life, Chelsea was diagnosed with gender dysphoria, or GD, which she showed signs of even at this young age. According to the DSM-5, GD occurs when there's an incongruence between a person's experienced or expressed gender and the one they were assigned at birth. Researcher Garima Garg and their team explain that cultural stigmatization can arise out of GD. 
anyone who doesn't adhere to the traditional, rigid societal binary male or female roles often struggles to find their place in our society. This can lead to clinically significant distress or impairment within the community, the family unit, and the schoolyard. That was true for Chelsea, especially at school, where she struggled to find her place amongst her peers. She was always too much. For the boys, she was too feminine. For the girls, she was too masculine. The only thing it seemed like everyone could agree on was that Chelsea was annoyingly smart. We're gonna have a spelling test. One day, Chelsea's fellow students held an impromptu spelling bee on the school bus. They fought over who could spell the most impressive words. Finally, one kid stood up and spelled Mississippi, which got oohs and ahs from the crowd. That was when Chelsea piped up and said that she could spell television. To a group of seven-year-olds, such a feat was beyond comprehension. They all sat in silence as Chelsea rattled it off. Then she sat back down, feeling smug. In her eyes, she was the clear winner. What she didn't realize was that being the best wouldn't necessarily make her popular. No one wanted to be friends with a know-it-all. The problem was, that was Chelsea in a nutshell. According to Denver Nick's book, Private, even in elementary school, she gave off an air of intellectual superiority, and not just over her classmates. Sometimes she felt that way about her teachers, too. If she ever thought a teacher got something wrong, she wasn't afraid to challenge their authority. This is something we'll see a lot throughout Chelsea's story. When she noticed that something was wrong, she spoke up. Some would call that brave. Others might say she was principled to a fault. Back at home, things weren't quite so black and white. Because if there's one thing that exemplifies the shades of gray in human dynamics, it's family relationships. One afternoon in 1999, when Chelsea was 11, her dad dropped a bombshell on his wife. He was seeing another woman, and he wanted a divorce. Susan was absolutely blindsided. To cope, she turned to alcohol. She'd always been a heavy drinker, but it only got worse once Brian left. She was a stay-at-home mom with no income, so she had to take on babysitting jobs and rely on neighborly generosity for help. Thankfully, 21-year-old Casey had moved out of the house, so that was one less mouth to feed. But Susan still struggled to pull together enough money for herself and Chelsea. While Chelsea was torn up about her parents' split, there was a silver lining. Without her father's strict oversight, she could express herself more. It wasn't anything huge, but there were subtle changes, like wearing stylish blue jeans like the ones her sister wore. This newfound sense of self fit nicely in line with the identity Chelsea was grappling with at the time. See, sometime before middle school, she'd told her best friend that she was gay. Surprisingly, and thankfully, her first coming out wasn't a big deal at all. There was no falling out, no typical childish taunts. By all accounts, her friend was pretty accepting right off the bat. Unfortunately, Chelsea didn't have the comfort of that friendship for much longer. Later that year, in November of 2001, her mother decided to move. Susan couldn't make it work on her own and needed more help. She wanted to go back to the UK where the rest of her family lived. At first, Chelsea was hesitant to leave behind the world she knew. But there was something exciting about moving abroad. This was her chance to see the world beyond her small suburban town. 
So Chelsea embraced the change, helped her mom book flights, and then they left the States behind. Chelsea thought Wales might offer her a fresh start, and in many ways it did, because no one knew her yet, she could express herself more easily than she had back in Oklahoma. Sometimes she'd go down to the local shop and buy makeup. She'd find a bathroom and carefully apply it, then wear it around in public for a few hours to see how it felt. She loved it. She also found her niche at school. Over the years, Chelsea had taken after her father's love of computers and developed remarkable coding skills. And that, paired with her American accent, made her the shiny new thing in class. She helped her peers with all their computer problems and built websites for them. She even created a Facebook-type site long before social media was a thing. In short, Chelsea was exceptionally talented, which, of course, she knew. She basked in her intelligence and her superiority over everyone else. Unfortunately, she was terrible at taking a joke, and that was a big problem, especially with her new classmates' British humor. The culture there revolved around constant ribbing, and Chelsea just couldn't handle it. Every day it weighed on her more. Eventually, she started lashing out at her schoolmates, screaming at them whenever they poked fun. Of course, that only made the kids tease her more. Suddenly, all that goodwill she'd built up evaporated. She once again found herself on the outside looking in, feeling like an alien who was constantly bullied for being different. Still, despite the fact that she was often the target of her classmates' taunting, if Chelsea ever saw anyone else getting the brunt of things, she stepped in, even if that meant attracting more attention her way. Just like when she disagreed with her teachers, those strong principles of hers kicked into gear. If she saw something wrong, she said something. It didn't matter what the consequences were or who she pissed off. It was the kind of philosophy that could get a person into trouble if they weren't careful. Coming up, Chelsea searches for herself by getting lost in something big. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from Parcast Network. It's the perfect time to grab yourself a second helping of the Spotify original from Parcast, Devious Dads. Our limited series is back with a new collection of episodes from across the network, exposing the unfortunate families whose patriarchs had a penchant for causing pain. Criminal masterminds, spies, murderers. Every Sunday on Spotify, Devious Dads features the fathers who chose to put the fear of God into those they tormented, including their own families. Some men raise children, others raise hell. Be sure to follow season two of Devious Dads free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. 
In 2005, 17-year-old Chelsea Manning finished her schooling in Wales and decided to go back to the States. She reached out to her dad for help making the trip. They'd hardly spoken since Chelsea had left with her mother, but at the end of the day, family loyalty mattered to Brian Manning more than anything, so he wired her the money. Alas, her return to Oklahoma City wasn't the welcome home reception she'd envisioned. By then, her dad had remarried, and apparently he had a thing for women named Susan because his new wife was also named Susan, same as Chelsea's mom. I know, confusing, right? For the sake of clarity, we'll call Chelsea's stepmom Sue. And Sue? She wasn't thrilled about the prospect of having Chelsea around. That might sound like we're about to get into villainous stepmother territory, but really they just had a clash of personalities. There were small things like Sue's rule about no smoking in the house, which Chelsea regularly ignored. But there was also the fact that Chelsea was mooching off Brian and Sue. Sure, she was only 17, but she'd graduated high school, so Sue and Brian figured it was time for her to pay her own way. Chelsea did manage to get a job at a software startup, but she struggled to focus at work and got fired. After that, she expected that Brian and Sue would keep supporting her, which didn't go over well. Of course, we'd be remiss not to discuss the underlying tensions surrounding Chelsea's identity. By this point, she was still presenting as male, but it adopted a more androgynous look. She grew her hair out and wore eyeliner, hoping it would help soothe her gender anxieties. Unfortunately, her father still didn't understand her, and her stepmother hated her appearance. They both wanted Chelsea to be something she wasn't. They thought maybe it was a phase, but with each passing day, the tension bubbled closer to the surface, until finally, it came to a boil. One evening in March of 2006, all three of them were in the kitchen, and it was more of the same. We don't know exactly what they were arguing about that night, but maybe Sue was imploring Chelsea to find a job. She kept going on and on. She was frustrated, but she wasn't the only one. Chelsea was sick and tired of her stepmother getting on her back like this. Things got heated pretty quickly. Harsh words were tossed around, and the fighting escalated until Chelsea pulled a knife on Sue. Brian lunged between the two of them, putting himself in front of his wife. Who knows if Chelsea would have actually done anything, but Sue didn't care. She called 911 and told them that the teenager was out of control. After a few minutes, everyone calmed down. It's not clear if the police ever showed up at the house, but what we do know is that Sue refused to let her stepdaughter stay there any longer, and Brian agreed. So, with her tail tucked between her legs, Chelsea packed her things into her truck. Then she hit the road and never looked back. After that, Chelsea bounced from place to place, looking for a new home. She stopped for a few months in Tulsa, then she went to Chicago for a spell. Eventually, she ended up in Maryland. Throughout it all, her dad stayed in touch. Despite what went down, he still believed that Chelsea could turn her life around. He wanted to see her succeed, to make something of herself. His suggestion? She ought to join the military. He knew from experience that it would give her structure and grounding. In his mind, that was all she needed to put her straight. Chelsea convinced herself that he might be right. Maybe she really could shake her feeling of gender dysphoria. 
Surely, if anything could, as she put it, man her up, it was the army. So she looked into it. It turned out there were other solid reasons for enlisting, besides her misguided idea that it might change who she was. For one, they'd pay for her college. For someone who'd always valued her education and intelligence, this was a major selling point. But also, Chelsea was a patriot. She wanted to help her country, and she knew she had the smarts to do it. There was one slight problem, though. In 2007, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was still in effect. This was the nickname for the official military policy, signed into law by Bill Clinton in 1993, that declared that gay, lesbian, and bisexual soldiers could enlist so long as they kept their sexuality to themselves. You'll notice that transgender people aren't included in that list as they were still outright banned from serving. At the time, 19-year-old Chelsea was still presenting as a man and identified as gay. If she enlisted, she'd have to hide that side of herself. Should anyone find out about her sexuality, she could get an other-than-honorable discharge. That would mean as a veteran, she'd lose access to services like medical care, financial compensation, pensions, or a debt-free college education. Knowing all that, Chelsea weighed the pros and cons. Ultimately, she decided that she could hide her true identity in exchange for a sense of purpose. So, on October 7, 2007, she signed her enlistment papers. Almost immediately, she was shipped off to Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri. There, she got a new haircut, a new set of clothes, and was sent to Basic Combat Training, or BCT. Basic training is purposefully tough. It's the military's way of trying to break you. That way, if you do fail, it happens when the stakes are much lower. The last thing anyone wants is to send soldiers into the battlefield who can't handle themselves. Within only a matter of weeks, it seemed like Chelsea might be one of those who didn't pass muster. BCT was rough. To be fair, she might have borne the brunt of the bullying within her unit. She was small and feminine, making her an obvious choice to haze. She got called all kinds of awful names and was routinely picked on by the drill sergeants who yelled at her for everything. She ran too slow, she cleaned too fast, she talked too much. It seemed like no matter what she did, she was always doing it wrong. One time, Chelsea stood in the cafeteria line, quietly waiting for her food. She'd already learned better than to talk too much. Still, her drill sergeant yelled at her to shut up. Chelsea tried to bite her tongue, but it had been weeks of non-stop criticism, and she couldn't take the unfair treatment anymore. She slammed her tray against the table and screamed back, I'm not talking. Chelsea's reaction was exactly what the drill sergeant wanted. They were trying to break her, and she'd played right into their hands. But Chelsea didn't care. She refused to just stand there and take it. Her superiors were nothing more than schoolyard bullies on steroids, and she wasn't going to let them win. But her drill sergeants didn't let up after that. They continuously berated her, and Chelsea talked right back to them. She didn't worry that her insubordination only led to more hazing. But as principled as she was, Chelsea could only keep this up for so long. Towards the end of October, she claimed she had nerve damage that was affecting her left arm. Something was wrong, she said, but her superiors thought otherwise. 
They figured she couldn't handle the pressure and was faking it. If they were right, Chelsea wouldn't have been the first soldier to engage in malingering. According to the DSM-5, malingering is the intentional production of false or grossly exaggerated physical or psychological problems. It's not a mental illness, but it is a condition with clear external motivators. Generally, it occurs when someone's trying to get out of work, prosecution, or military duty. Chelsea insisted that wasn't the case and that there was a genuine problem with her arm. Unfortunately, there was no clear way to prove it, so Chelsea was sent to the rehab and holding unit, otherwise known as the discharge unit. There, Chelsea wavered. Some days she held tight to the fact that her injury was real and that she wanted to recover and continue her training. Other times she railed against how her superiors treated her, calling it persecution. On those days, she was ambivalent about her future in the army. But in late December, the decision was made for her. Chelsea's injury had subsided and the army needed more intelligence officers, so they gave her a chance to return to basic training. She'd have to start over, but she could redeem herself. Round two of basic training was every bit as tough as the first time, but Chelsea persevered. She knew the rules this go around and she followed them to a T. Six weeks later, she graduated from BCT. Finally, she could move on to the real work, intelligence training. Chelsea was stationed at Fort Huachuca in Arizona. There, she felt like she finally found her place. Before, she'd struggled to deal with the intense personalities of her fellow soldiers. But now, she spent all day with computer data, and that was way easier to decipher than people. She could trust data to be unbiased, truthful, fair. Chelsea's main task was sorting through SIG acts or significant actions. It was a big job. Basically, she and her fellow analysts received mountains of intelligence and then had to sort through and decide what was important or not. Chelsea read reports filed by soldiers on the battlefield, watched recordings of missions, and pored over communications from Iraqi and Afghan sources. At times, it was an overwhelming amount of data, far too much for higher-ups to wade through themselves. That's why what officers like Chelsea did was so important. They determined what made it into the reports read by the people in charge. Those reports informed military strategy, and that could mean life and death decisions. At first, Chelsea felt privileged to have such a role, but as time went on, she became more disturbed by what she learned. Day in and day out, she sat at a computer screen and watched bloody events unfold. She tried to keep an emotional arm's length, but she couldn't help but feel affected. There were real people on the other side of those videos, and too often she saw their lives end, whether it was a soldier's or a civilian's. Chelsea may have been a lowly intelligence officer, but the way she saw it, her reports influenced decisions that ended in people dying. She held herself responsible for those actions and became increasingly conflicted about her own part as a cog in the military machine. On top of that, Chelsea was dealing with personal issues. When she'd enlisted, she'd hoped that the army would give her clarity about who she was. Unfortunately, it only seemed to be more of a stressor. Even as she engaged with her work, she was constantly worried her sexuality would be exposed. 
A growing sense of paranoia consumed her. She felt like everywhere she went, she was being judged, ridiculed, and watched. She wasn't out, but people made a lot of assumptions all the same. Her fellow soldiers made fun of her pink phone. Her roommate was outright homophobic and refused to talk to her. She couldn't find common ground with anyone in her unit. Just like when she was a kid, Chelsea felt like an outsider, only now the stakes were way higher and she was stuck. All of this weighed on Chelsea as she began to unravel. When she called her friends and family back home, she often devolved into incoherent screaming and crying because she was so frustrated. On the base, she gave attitude to her superiors whenever they asked her to do the smallest of things and she started slacking off on her duties and showing up late. One morning, she slept through formation and had to be woken up by her unit leader, Jerlea Showman. Showman grilled her on what had happened. At first, Chelsea took it on the chin, but as the criticism kept coming, she lost it. According to Showman's later report, Chelsea started screaming unintelligibly at the top of her lungs, waving her arms wildly and salivating. When Showman finally calmed her down, Chelsea said that she was simply beating herself up over her mistake. But Showman suspected something more was at play. She worried that Chelsea might be suicidal or at the very least having some sort of psychotic break. Chelsea denied both. Without any concrete explanation for the outburst, Showman suggested that Chelsea go to counseling. She also recommended that her access to classified information be revoked and that she shouldn't deploy with their unit in the fall. But the Army needed more manpower. They couldn't give up an otherwise solid intelligence officer because of one incident. So they ignored the warning signs that their soldier might have needed help. As for Chelsea, she kept on telling herself that things would be different once she was deployed. It'd be another fresh start, a chance to do something that mattered. Disillusioned or not, she still thought she could make a real difference. And she would. She just had no idea how much she'd change everything. Coming up, Chelsea gets into bed with WikiLeaks. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 2009, 21-year-old Chelsea Manning arrived with her unit at forward operating base Hammer. The base was about 30 miles east of Baghdad and surrounded by nothing but desert. It wasn't quite on the front lines, but they were close enough that Chelsea could hear the occasional bomb go off in the distance. Despite the close proximity to actual warfare, Chelsea fell quickly into the mundane day-to-day -day of her job, or rather the night-to-night. -night. She'd landed the graveyard shift. She'd sleep through the day, then wake up at 9 p.m., get some dinner for breakfast, and head to her post. She spent most of her time in a sensitive compartmented information facility, or SCIF for short. That sounds fancy, but basically the skiff was a haphazardly built room where Chelsea had a desk, a chair, and three computers. For eight hours every night, she did exactly what she'd been trained to do, tried to make sense of all the intel in front of her and look for patterns or clues as to what the enemy would do next. But as Chelsea toiled away alone in the skiff, she grew quietly frustrated. 
she saw a clear disconnect between the reality of war and what American citizens knew about it back home. They were getting a sanitized version on the nightly news, but the war was brutal and messy and riddled with poor decisions, maybe even corrupt decisions. One time, Chelsea found potentially damning information about the Iraqi federal police. They'd manufactured charges to illegally detain 15 Iraqis, and there was a chance that those captives were being tortured. Chelsea had proof that the civilians were innocent and that they'd been arrested because they were speaking out against the prime minister. Alarmed, Chelsea tried to bring the situation to the attention of her superior, but she was dismissed out of hand because it didn't fit their narrative. They said they wanted more detainees, not less. Chelsea couldn't believe it. She thought intelligence was supposed to be unbiased, but it turned out in the wrong hands, it could be manipulated. Another time, Chelsea provided a report to the higher-ups about a suspicious meeting set to take place. The exact details of the meeting are a little vague because the information isn't readily available. But as a result of that report, someone tangentially connected to the meeting was killed. Chelsea was racked with guilt, and she was quickly losing faith in what they were doing. The stress was getting to her, and she latched onto any coping mechanism she could find. She blew through packs of cigarettes, mainlined caffeine until she couldn't take the jitters anymore, and stuffed herself with food. But none of it was enough, especially because Chelsea was battling on two fronts. There was the growing unease about the work she was doing, and she was struggling with the secret of her own gender identity and sexuality. Things were so bad that she reached out to an online counselor to talk through her tornado of emotions. In one of their sessions after unloading everything onto the counselor, Chelsea said she felt like a monster. She was fighting a never-ending battle, but then she saw a light at the end of the tunnel. On November 25, 2009, over the course of 24 hours, the website WikiLeaks released a database of electronic messages that had been sent on 9-11. Some were completely mundane messages from ordinary citizens. Others were from first responders and Pentagon officials. I want to pause for a quick minute to orient you in the world of 2009. We've all heard of WikiLeaks by now, but back then it was still in its early stages. It was founded by Julian Assange, who believed in, quote, radical transparency. Basically, that meant he thought everything should be available to the public. Every corporate memo, personal address, charity donor list, troop movement. It really didn't matter what. If it existed, it ought to be out there for everyone to see. Despite his lofty goals, up until this point, WikiLeaks was best known for leaking Sarah Palin's emails and publishing an army manual of standard operating procedures for soldiers at Guantanamo Bay. That was about it. Chelsea had heard of those incidents, but hadn't given the fledgling website much thought at the time. But this latest info dump was different. She recognized the 9-11 messages as coming from an NSA server, which meant that WikiLeaks was clearly attracting more high-level sources these days. And that got Chelsea's attention. So she started doing her own digging. And the more she learned, the more she wondered if maybe WikiLeaks was the way to make people understand what was happening in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
That didn't mean she was 100% on board with their mission statement of total transparency. After all, she thought there were certain things worth keeping secret, like sensitive sources, troop movements, and nuclear information. But then there was all the other stuff that had been weighing on her, the mistakes and cover-ups. That information might hurt reputations and end careers, but it wouldn't physically endanger anyone. Chelsea believed that those things shouldn't be hidden. She went back and forth on what she should do, until finally she reached out to Julian Assange himself. She just wanted to hear what he had to say. We don't know for sure what was said between Chelsea and Assange, but by early December of 2009, Chelsea was searching through army servers for anything that might be interesting to WikiLeaks. She hadn't necessarily made the decision to become a whistleblower, but she was certainly considering it. But if she uncovered something damning enough, maybe that would push her over the edge. That damning thing? It was a video. For a little context, seven months earlier, in May of 2009, there'd been a U.S. strike on the Afghan village of Granai. But it had gone horribly wrong. The bombing had left 140 civilians dead, most of them children. The U.S. claimed the death toll was much lower than that, but no one could confirm it. Either way, human rights workers called it the worst episode of civilian casualties in eight years of war in Afghanistan. The public had been clamoring for an investigation into the brutal attack, but while the Pentagon had looked into it, they refused to disclose their findings. They said the mission was classified, so they kept their report and a video of the bombing safe and hidden in their servers. But in late December, Chelsea found the aerial footage of that day. There wasn't any bombshell revelation about the mission, but it was horrific to actually see the events play out on screen as they'd been described. It was easy to see why no one in power wanted the video out there. But as Chelsea watched, she saw no reason why it shouldn't be released. It was a massive mistake on the part of the U.S. military, yes, but they needed to own up to their decisions and be kept accountable, not sweep them all under the rug. So Chelsea took matters into her own hands. The security industry has a handy acronym to determine why a person might leak sensitive information, MICE. In general, a leaker is operating due to one of the following, money, ideology, coercion, or ego. In Chelsea's case, she was clearly influenced by ideology. She believed that she was doing the right thing, and her beliefs were so strong that once she decided to act, she gave little thought to the consequences. Sure, she didn't want to get caught, no one would, but the risk didn't weigh too heavily on her mind. She was concerned with things more important than herself. So Chelsea grabbed a blank CD and copied the video, along with the entire Pentagon report, onto the disk. Then she rushed back to her room and pulled up the WikiLeaks homepage. There, glowing back at her, was a button that read, Submit Documents. Chelsea clicked the button. This was the moment. There would be no turning back after she did this. But Chelsea was convinced she'd been on the fence long enough. Now it was time to do something. It was time to change the world. She wrote out a quick message explaining what was in the video. Then she attached the files and hit send. 
They were the first classified documents she sent to WikiLeaks. But they certainly wouldn't be the last. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two, where Chelsea becomes the biggest whistleblower the world had ever seen. For more information on Chelsea Manning, amongst the many sources we used, we found Matthew Scher's New York Times profile, The Long, Lonely Road of Chelsea Manning, and Denver Nick's book, Private, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns and edited by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast Network. Devious Dads is back for a second season and a new collection of hair-raising episodes from across our catalog of shows. Every Sunday, meet the parents who were anything but protectors. Follow Devious Dads free and only on Spotify. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Exciting news. Parcast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before details which haven't even been explored in our cults podcast visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who joined them 